This episode is brought to you by Butters and Bars, a Black woman-owned and operated skincare company. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today, I'm meeting with Ayana Lloyd Bonwo about her debut novel, When We Were Birds, which came out this past spring. It was on so many of the most anticipated books of 2022 list, including Time and Harper's Bazaar. I thoroughly enjoyed it. In November at the Miami Book Fair, Ayana was on a panel about Caribbean myths and realities. Ayana, thank you so much for coming on Read More to talk about your work. Thank you so much for having me, Marva. It's a great podcast. When We Were Birds is set in Trinidad. It's about Ye Jide, a woman from a family whose maternal line is responsible for ushering the dead into the afterlife. For every generation, one woman takes on this responsibility. And the novel opens as Yejide is about to take her turn. She later meets Darwin, a man who finds himself working in a cemetery, even though that work goes against his upbringing as a Rastafarian who isn't supposed to have anything to do with the dead. Yet they find each other and experience an immediate connection. Yejide's grandmother tells her stories about how in ancient times, a breed of bird developed, a kobo that eats the dead, both animal and human, and then the souls transform in the bird's bodies and are later released. She implies that the family is intimately aware of this, but it's unclear how much Yejide understands. Ayana, this story is just so unique and magical. I have to ask you, how did these characters first come to you? And who came first and who spoke to you the loudest? Oh gosh. Um thank you thank you so much. Um you know characters are very ornery and own way things. <laughs> Darwin actually was the character that came first. Um I just to kind of go back a little bit. I had spent I spent I spent a lot of time in cemeteries in the last um from about 2013 when my when my mother died. And then, you know, you know when a family tends to have several deaths at one time it's like if one goes and then they call the others and that's kind of how things sort of happened in my family for a few years so it meant um I spent a lot of time walking around um a a cemetery in Port of Spain called Lapiru Cemetery and somewhere around that time I just started thinking about this character who was a gravedigger of course I met a lot of gravediggers I met a lot of people who work with death in that kind of way. And he was, at the time, an older man who had already made, he had already come so far from the person he thought he was. And he had all these regrets and all these wonderings about his life. And, you know, his voice just kept in my head. It was just him walking around the cemetery, um, making sure no one was left behind before he locked up for the day. And and that was the first character. And as I started thinking about him, thinking about him, that, that's my process. I kind of write in, in scene and in voice first. So it was just him talking. And as he talked, he walked. And as he walked, I saw, ah, this is the cemetery that I know, but a little bit different. It's the one that he knows. And as he walked, then he met this woman. 
And that's kind of how the process and the characters sort of developed. So Darwin was was the first, but I don't know if he was the loudest. You know, he was definitely my entry point. But I feel like by the time Yajide came into the story, she just vibrated. She just shook up. She shook up a lot of things. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your family, that you went through that stretch where you had a lot of deaths. I know that had to yeah. be difficult. Thank you. Um, my mother and I were very, very close. So, but you know, a lot of um, I think a lot of why I wrote this 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 novel was um kind of came out of, of that time of navigating the complications of grief, but also thinking about collective grief and collective ancestorship and our collective um how how we deal with death as a as a collective. You know, I think my individual experience sort of became bigger than what I was going through. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you were on a panel back in mm -hmm. November that explored Caribbean myths and realities in literature. And you had a chance to talk about the unreality of reality and the truth of the fantastic. This novel, I like I said, there's just a sense of magic about it for me. There are these supernatural elements that just are. And I enjoy the world that you created so much. Uh, there's one chapter, I won't give anything away because I don't like to do spoilers <laughs> on the show, but there's one chapter that I just wrote in my notes about the book. It's like, it felt like you had to be in a fever dream to write that chapter. Um, I think I know the chapter you're talking about, but tell me. <laughs> chapter 14. Uh, but you know, yep. despite all of this, I still wasn't sure if you mm. would characterize this novel as magical realism. Where do you stand on that? Oh gosh, I think I I I I hop around that quite a lot. I mean, um let me start off saying I'm happy for people to do their work, right? I'm happy for publishers and categorizers and the people whose work that is to decide, okay, I need to put some kind of container or some kind of structure so a reader can have a general sense of maybe what they might meet when they pick a book up. You know, I know the algorithms do their thing. The, you know, the librarians have, you know, you have to have some kind of thing. And that's the work of the people whose work that is, right? That's not my work. Um, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, the, I'm the creator. I'm the storyteller. I'm the, I'm the transmitter and translator of, of the myths, of the religions, of the folk ways, of the death ways, of the people that I come from. Um, so for me, that's not magic. For me, that's more realism than anything else. You know, so these these terms um, have very little to do with me. I mean, I can put my academic hat on and say, you know, we could talk about it from 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 that perspective. But um, I think a lot of the times our our work as as writers and 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 my work as a as a as a black diaspora Caribbean writer is just to tell our stories in the best way that I can, right? So when I, so for instance, you mentioned the, the Kobo myth that begins the, the, the novel. Um, that's not an existing myth in that form. 
that's something that I sort of cribbed and pulled and 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 was inspired by so many other um stories and legends about carrion birds that exist throughout the world. You know, they're they're in indigenous communities across what is now the United States and what's now Canada, they're there across South America, you know, they're they're the Yoruba stories of um of Oshun turning into a black vulture, you know, it's almost sacrificing herself to reach Odomari to plead on behalf of, of mankind who have just, you know, sort of gone astray. So for me, I oh I can I believe that I can take all of those stories and make and use them to make something that, you know, that that tells the story I want to tell. So um and and the thing is the, the what I, why I was drawn to the Kobo too is because it's very biology is magical, quote unquote magical. You know, a carrion bird can eat what is rotting, what is contagion, what will kill, and take it in and transmute it and live. You know, the, the biologists say that is science. You know, where's the line between science and magic? Where's the line between spiritual and reality? So just in the body of this bird became a really powerful symbol for me to say, Maybe we rethink these categories a little bit about what is reality and what's magical, what's mythical and what's history, you know, what's legend and what's what's truth. Because, yeah, those kind of binaries never really work when it comes to story, do they? No, they don't. You know? And I, as I said, this felt, it all felt very real to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just this beautiful rhythm to the novel and there's a lots of musicality to the language and the way the people of Trinidad speak. And I know that you're from Trinidad and mm-hmm. Tobago. And I love your author's note on this novel where you say <laughs> the, the island of Trinidad is real. Ge- mm-hmm. The geography, characters, and places in this novel are fiction. Yeah. What elements of this novel, though, would you say are definitely real and pulled mm-hmm. from your culture? that you grew up with. Uh, I was very interested in the story about people being descended from birds. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I wondered, was you said that this, the uh, story of the Kobo is something Mm -hmm. that you came up with on your own, but are there similar stories that the people of Trinidad Mm -hmm. would be very familiar Mm -hmm. with? Um, You know, I know there are a lot of stories about enslaved Africans being able to fly. And I wondered if there was any connection between those stories and the story you've created here in your novel. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a, um, someone just reminded me of this the other day. There's a, I'm not even, I think the tree, I think they cut the tree down, Um, but there's a tree in Tobago that I remember, if I'm remembering this legend correctly, there's a a woman who they call Gangang Sarah, who she flew from Africa to meet, to be with her husband who was taken um, taken and enslaved and you know that was that was where he was so that was where she went and she stayed and they had children and they you know eventually free had a life and so on and when he died she tried to fly back home but she eaten salt and so she couldn't fly and she went to the top of this tree that's where she tried to fly from and then she also died I hope if anybody any any Tobagonians listening if I didn't tell that story a hundred hundred percent please forgive me I tried my best but that's the spot that's the general gist of the story so I think the idea of flights and 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 the idea of of there is an ability that we had or used to have that we don't have anymore 
or there's a secret ability that some people still retain and some people don't is very much a part of that Black diaspora experience of longing to retain, of longing for freedom, of longing for, you know, what we have lost, you know, and 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 I suppose when you're in the diaspora, what what you were able to carry, what you were able to retain. So I I, I find in general that flight in in this context to be um, something very very powerful and very very potent. And yes, a lot of those things I I, I thought about and was thinking about when I thought about these these women, you know, even. Oh God, hard to say this without spoilers. You know, they're 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 scenes of of rescue, of vengeance, of you know somebody who is old and ancient and has still has that wisdom and still has those powers that comes and says, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, this isn't right." You know, I, I'm I'm going to sort it. And I think these figures we see them in a lot of Caribbean uh, novels, see them in a lot of African American novels. The idea of the medicine woman, the obia woman, the seer man the person who retains the science and emerges as a savior at points when they are needed. So I think, um, you know, sometimes I, you know, people ask me questions like this and then I think, gosh, did I do that deliberately? Or have I just been so steeped in all of these stories and these ideas that they just end up in the work without necessarily intending to? So maybe if you asked me, if somebody asked me this two, three months ago, if you hadn't asked me that question, it might not have clicked to me, of course. But, you know, you grow up with these stories and as a writer, everything is just, you know, kind of seeping into you and, and everything is at your disposal to use, you know, as 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 necessary for the work. An interesting element that you explore in this novel is feeling like an outsider. Mm -hmm. Throughout his life, Darwin experiences this. Mm -hmm. His Rastafarian faith and his locks separate him visually from his peers and cause this separation between uh, him and a lot of different people he encounters where he grows up. Mm -hmm. Um, For Gejide, her family lives atop a mountain. And there is this separation between them and the other people in their community. Uh, What draws you to writing about outsiders and how they uh, function in the world? Hmm. I think um, I grew up reading a lot of fairy tales. I mean, I grew up with a lot of stories from my grandmother that were stories about their upbringing and their growing up. But from once, you know, my grandparents started giving us books, we did read a lot of fairy tales. And I think I was always the, and when I say fairy tales, not just fairy tales, it was Greek myths, it was West African stories, it was it was any anything that was magic and story, you know, I was I was about it. And I so I think from then I've always been, I've always been very clear on this belief or this sense that there is a world behind the world that we live in and that there would be people or communities that are hidden, that are secret, that preserve some kind of balance that the rest of us aren't aware that they are preserving 
or that have some sort of secret mandate or some kind of just secret lives. And, and, and I think I've always been drawn to that idea. And it sounds fanciful and, and so on, but I think even in a very, you know, quote unquote, realistic way, it is true that there are people go about the day doing very invisible, important work that must be done that no one sees them do. But if they don't do it, <laughs> you know, then you see the effects of what happens when they haven't done this thing that they have to do. And I mean, there's something about feminized labor in that too, that, you know, we could probably have a whole other podcast talking about that part. But, you know, I think the sense that there are communities that um, whose work is critical and that they're often uncelebrated, um, invisible, either through their own choice because their knowledge is sacred or because they are marginalized and they're not seen. And I think um, Darwin's reality and Anyajida's reality, they, they both represent those two sides of the spectrum. You know, Darwin is, is either unseen or dismissed because of, of, his, of his religion um, and because of the socio, the social sort of, um, 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 I'm, I'm losing words in my head, um, discrimination against people who are Rasta. And I don't necessarily mean people who have locks, I mean people who are actually Rasta. And then from Yajide's side, it is important for them to be secret. It's important for them to hold that, um, that knowledge sort of by themselves because, well, one, who would believe them? And two, um, it's just, they couldn't do what they did if they went on TV and said, hi, ancient matriarchy in the hills here, <laughs> sorting out your dead. <laughs> well, yeah. there are some absolutely sinister characters in this book. Mm -hmm. uh, some people who darwin discovers are not as they seem who you know they do things in the dark that uh, people don't know about but they're not good yeah. things uh what did you have to tap into as a writer to create these characters and are they harder for you to create than virtuous characters or mm. are they more fun because of the uh outrageously bad things that they right. do Ooh, um I don't know if harder, I think, you know, I struggle with, with, I think when I was writing, when I was writing this book, I think the, the idea of a villain is fun to write because a villain isn't bound by, a villain doesn't have to do anything. You know, a villain is not bound to deliver you a happy ending. A villain doesn't have to make you like them. A villain doesn't have to do any of those things. So there's something kind of maybe free about writing somebody who's a villain. But at the same time, a villain is a person. You know, a villain also has, um, you know, every every monster has a mother. Every, you know, every, you know, there's, there's, there's a character who at the end of the day, whatever he does, what he does, but, you know, his children have to get ice cream on a Sunday. You know, he's carry his wife to do her hair. And that's, you know, they're, they're also human beings and they're also people. So I think it's important to tap into to those parts of, of characters that are villainous. But I'm not always sure about 
the whole it, it, I suppose I'm thinking now about there's also a way in our in our contemporary culture where we like this idea of of humanizing villainy to the point of being dishonest about it. You know, I think and that that goes too far in the other direction for me. I think a monster is a monster. And because a monster has a mother, because a monster is nice to his wife, because a monster takes his children for ice cream, doesn't excuse, doesn't mean, you know what I mean? I think sometimes we end up in this weird kind of celebrity culture of, of, of villainy where we kind of go uh, too far in the other direction. Um, and it's fine for art, but... I feel we need the context to kind of deconstruct when we're doing that and what that means and what that says about, um, particularly when, you know, of course I'm thinking of the Dharma series in my head on Netflix, particularly when it's real people and real trauma and real pain, you know, we end up in a strange kind of zone where villainy becomes um, real monsters become celebrities or, or things to entertain us, which is, um, I hope that's not sort of where I've gone <laughs> uh, with this book, but I think that with with these characters, um, where what I found important that I wanted to write about them is what happens when, what kinds of desperate decisions does poverty or the love of money or the need for survival or extreme inequality, what 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 does that drive people to do? You know, what does a disconnection between the the sacred and the not sacred do to us? What happens when a graveyard is just a place to bury people and not holy ground? So I think these characters kind of function in that space where they're there to kind of interrogate what happens when we split you know the spiritual and the physical and what happens when inequality is so entrenched that people just do what they feel is necessary and what they feel they need to do so I'm hoping that they're human enough that readers ask that question and that they're also chilling enough that they say "Ooh, damn that's horrible what I've just read because people are horrible people are also just horrible and I think that is an important um that's an important thing for us as writers as creators to lay that and and lay that bare in the work and say this is also what people do this is also the lengths people go to this is also what we become does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It makes perfect okay, sense. Good. And I feel like you definitely achieved that balance here. You know, like you said, okay. <laughs> you know, a monster has a mother, but at the end of the day, a monster is still a monster. And that definitely mm. came through in the book. Um, they are uh, also fun to write to. <laughs> I don't know if I said that. I, I There are scenes with with the sort of the main bad guy where, oh, I just, you know, you love the dialogue. You love the way that, you know, if they they are fun they do let you kind of let go of it in the in the writing now we'll have a word from our new sponsor butters and bars ladies 
colleagues. Around the holidays, so many of us rip and run to make everything right for someone else. But it's also important that we take time to take care of ourselves. Using butters and bars is a great way to practice self-care. Our bars will gently clean your skin without stripping it of its natural oils and the butters will leave your skin feeling so silky and smooth. Go to readmorepodcast.com to find out how to save over 40% on our whipped cocoa butter. Ayana, let's talk now about what you like to read and the books that have Mm -hmm. influenced you. Uh, Do you have what I like to call go-to books that you find yourself returning to again and again, uh, because there's just something about them that draws you to them and maybe you've read it uh, several times? Oh boy, there are many of them. I think, um, I think for me, I have, I have touchstone authors first where, um, if they wrote a grocery list, I would read it. You know, Toni Morrison is a touchstone author for me. Uh, Olive Senior is a touchstone author for me. Uh, Earl Lovelace is a touchstone author for me. Edwidge Dandicat is a touchstone author for me. It doesn't matter what the work is, what the writing is. There are certain books that I go back to often for instruction or for inspiration or for, good Lord, I'm never going to be able to do that. How on earth am I going to be able to do that? And that is not always a bad feeling. I think it sometimes feels like these are the 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 people that you aspire to and it just feels good to read something that you feel so perfectly crafted beloved is one of those um those books for me and i think it's the first it's the first book that i think of when i'm trying when i try to think of that that balance of the horror the gothic the oral the you know there's so many things going on in that text and I think I go back to it for that sense of okay that dawning horror of something that is not as simple as just watching something that is scary or horrible if you know what I mean um, yes and I think to see that done I go back to beloved a lot uh, I go back to uh, Lovelace's the dragon can't dance a lot because it was the first book that I read that I felt had the cadence of Trinidadian speech, even though it was written in, not in standard, it wasn't written in standard English. For instance, it didn't have the same, the way maybe I treat verbs and and so on, and and, and I treat tenses in my novel. It's a little bit more along the lines of the standard, but the idioms, the cadence, the, I'd never seen that done before. The first time I think I'd, I'd read that book, I might have been 11 or, or or 12 or something like that. And I remember saying, whoa, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could write like how we talked in a book. I just didn't know that that was possible. The language of the Dragon Can Dance was very, very important for me as as given that it was the first book that I saw, I saw that happen. Um, anything Olive Senior writes, I mean, Olive Senior is a Jamaican. She's a she's an everything. She's a poet. She writes um, novels. She writes short stories. She writes nonfiction. I think she's even written some children's stories also. And she just just the breath of the breath of her of her work 
and um and the kindness and the unassumingness of her as a human being and the few times that I've sort of encountered her is really really remarkable um there's another book actually that I read so many times when I was growing up and that was um Anne Rice's um The Witching Hour Anne Rice was you know she she passed away recently and just you know she was just this you know white New Orleans gothic vampire queen <laughs> in my head and she wrote this this you know really huge uh series called the Mayfair Witches and I remember, oh, I just, you know, it was just that, that sort of genre book that everybody was reading at the time. And I devoured that book and read it so many times. So I think my my taste runs from the very literary all the way to, you know, anything that has story, anything that moves, anything that, you know, transports me into a world so fully that I look up from it and I feel myself go, oh, okay, where am I? Yeah. Um, what am I reading? So right now... I have a few books on my stack that I am really, really looking forward to to reading. Um, and these are book; these are proof, so they're going to be coming out soon. Um, Ayabami Adebayo is a spell of good things. Um, she is the writer of Stay with Me. So those who read Stay with Me, she's got a new book coming out. Um, Jonathan Escoffrey's If I Survive You, some short stories. He's a Jamaican. I think he's in the U.S. Um, a lot of buzz about this book, so I'm looking forward to getting into that. Well, now I, uh, I'd like to kind of look on the flip side of this. Uh, mm-hmm. Books maybe that didn't do it for you, um, but did it for seemingly everybody else. Do you have anything like that? That's maybe oh, it could even be a classic, or it could be a very you know a more mo- yeah. a modern, popular novel. But do you have anything like that that maybe? You couldn't even finish this it. wasn't for me. Or you did finish it and then you said, I, I don't get this one. Why is there so much hype around it? So because my reading, I think, was so not um, not classic oriented in a lot of ways. So, for instance, um, we read those sort of little penguin children's classic things, your David Copperfield and your Great Expectations and so on. And, I, and when you're 10 or you're nine, you know, they put a book in front of you, you read everything. It never would never have occurred to me to say whether I liked it or I didn't like it. I just knew I liked books and I just knew I liked words. So I don't think I was very discerning in terms of what I read. So whatever they gave me was what I read. Um, by the time I was in my teens and so on, and I was like... I don't like these books. <laughs> so like there are certain things that I, I feel at one time, I think I would have been quite embarrassed to say that I hadn't read. I haven't read any Faulkner. And I love Jasmine Ward. And I know, you know, she talks about Faulkner so much, but I just haven't been able to get into Faulkner. And um, now as 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 a writer, I think, there's some things I want to go back to because I feel like, okay, it's different from do I like this or do I want to read this? You know, maybe there's some things that I read them because it's like medicine or it's like study and you just have to have a sense of it. But I don't know if I'll ever be, I don't know if I'll ever do that. I think if it's not for me, it's not for me. Um, What else has people talked about a lot that I just couldn't get into? Um, my mind is blanking on that at the moment. Um, 
particularly because in the last two years I've been writing more than reading. You know, um, let me think. What have I, what's here that I've been saying I'm going to read and I haven't read? No, everything that I have close to me right now are things that I know. You know, Marvel, life is so short. Life is too short to read something I don't want to read. It's and now short. you know you're not in school any longer so well you are yeah. in school actually right you're yeah uh, but, but even those things that you know so for for I'm, I'm, re I'm reading a lot of nonfiction. i'm reading a lot of a lot of research um on architecture and houses and and the development of port of spain into the you know sort of the, the cosmopolitan uh city at the cusp of south america and the caribbean so port of spain occupied this very interesting um space as a port city in the atlantic world particularly just post emancipation which is where i'm really kind of setting my next book in a way in in the city that was cosmopolitan full of migrants lately developing and kind of wild wild westish in a way in that um yes it is a colonized space but because it was ignored in a lot of ways for so long, it meant that there were, you know, things that kind of flew in, in Port of Spain that couldn't fly in Bridgetown, that couldn't fly in Kingston, um, which were more established and, and very valuable um, sugar colonies, enslaved colonies. So I'm really interested. So when I read um, texts that, that helped me with my research for that time, I don't like them. A lot of them are written by, you know, racist old fools, but they're useful to me in, in, in some way. But I don't know. I think with fiction, I think my my print my my impulse with fiction is first feeling is something pleasurable that I want to feel when I read fiction. So I start a book and I'm like, mm, not sure. I may still continue it, but if it's not for me, I know it's just not I can understand that yeah. well Ayana I just want to uh I actually want to just ask you one more question mm -hmm. uh you talked a little bit about uh what you're working on now and I'd love to know anything you can tell us about that project yes um I'm it's such a strange thing to be working on a new book while I'm still so my head is half in a new project and half in, in When We Were Birds and, it, you know, When We Were Birds is still quite new. So I'm still sort of in between two two places, which is which is nice in a lot of ways. It's nicer than it sounds. Um, The second book is is in the same world of, of Port Angeles, the same imagined city that is a very thinly disguised port of Spain. And um, it centers a house that's been passed down to one daughter, every generation and um the new heir that has come to come to claim it so um it's a book that's a lot about that space of um in this same kind of kind of wild no rules kind of zone you know what kind of lives women were able to make in that space you know where how, where did how did black women navigate those spaces of a place where the rules weren't as fixed so like i remember reading um reading sadia hartman when she talks about um 
these marginal, these these women in these marginal spaces and how they were able to, you know, what kind of fertile lives happen when you're outside of colonial authority, when you're outside of that plantation. And I mean, when I say plantation here, I don't necessarily mean just a physical plantation, but outside of these structures of achievement, respectability, um, all of those things, there's a kind of fertile space for um, creating a whole different kinds of lives. So I'm, I'm interested in um, this woman's desire to build a house that her female descendants would always own. Yeah. Well, that sounds that interesting. I hope out. you will come back when that comes out to talk about it. I would love to see Definitely. you again. Well, Ayana Lloyd Bonwell, it has been a pleasure talking to you today. And I thank you so much for coming on Read More. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. Looking forward to chatting again about the next book. And, you know, I love your podcast. I listen to it and you always have such great, great guests, great writers. So thank you very much for having me. Well, you're very welcome. Now that you've listened to the show, please go to readmorepodcast.com right now to find out how you can win a free copy of When We Were Birds and how you can score a big discount with Butters and Bars from today through December 22nd. Also, please follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together, when our guest will be Rashid Newson. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.